Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we can read together, uh, that we can uh, look at, uh, that is instructive for us in our lives today, but most of all that points us to Jesus. And we ask as we uh, open up this passage from Ruth together, you would instruct us and grow us as Christians, uh, that we might look more like Jesus each day, and that we might, of course, love you more. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm wondering if you've uh, ever seen the movie Les Mis or read the novel Les Mis or seen the musical Les Mis. Uh, in uh, this movie, there is a wonderful scene of redemption. Uh, Jean Valjean is a criminal and he's uh, released early on from prison. And uh, he uh, tries to find somewhere to stay overnight and uh, no one will take him in. He ends up sleeping outside and uh, the local bishop, comes by and sees him and, and gives him refuge uh, in, his, uh, in the cathedral. Now, Jean Valjean is an unchanged man at this point of time. Uh, he's still a thief, and uh, in the night he wakes up and uh, he steals uh, some of the, uh, the gold communion equipment uh, from the bishop, and uh, he heads on out into the night. And quickly he's uh, confronted by police, <clears throat> Uh, who, who uh, capture him and find on him these uh, items from the church. And uh, they drag him back to the church and knock on it in the middle of the night. And the bishop comes to the door and they ask him, are these items yours, bishop, that this man, Jean Valjean, has stolen? And of course, Jean Valjean is aware of what he's done and is shaking, thinking the bishop is going to hand him over. Uh, to life in prison once more. But the bishop does not do that. The bishop says, no, 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 I gave these to Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean, you forgot something. Let me get the, the candlesticks as well. And he goes inside and gives those to Jean Valjean. The police are satisfied. Uh, they, they head off. And uh, Jean Valjean is left with the bishop. And the bishop says to him, Jean Valjean, with these, your soul has been redeemed. It has been purchased. So be a changed man. It's a wonderful scene of redemption. And Jean Valjean, from that moment on, is a changed man. His life redeemed from a life of uh, slavery or of, of uh, being a criminal. Well, today uh, in our passage in Ruth, we continue the story of redemption that this book has for us. Uh, Naomi and Ruth at the start lost it all. Uh, Naomi lost her husband, her two sons, and uh, Ruth lost her husband. They returned to the land of Egypt destitute and alone. That is until Boaz, the remarkable character, turns up and shows Kindness to this woman gleaning in his fields, Ruth. And last week, we saw Ruth's daring proposal to Boaz at the threshing floor and the assurance that Ruth would indeed be redeemed. But, I'm not sure if you remember, there, there was a bit of a twist there because uh, Boaz said, I will indeed work this out today. But there is another redeemer. There is someone else who has a right to redeem you First. And so we left that passage wondering, perhaps, 
who it is that is going to redeem Ruth. Someone's going to redeem her, but who will it be? Will it be our hero of the story, Boaz, or this other unnamed, unknown redeemer? Well, we uh, return to the story to find out today, and uh, we've, we've already seen the answer as we've read it, uh, but as we work through the passage, uh, we're going to see uh, a few things about this redeemer and about redemption. So as we work through, we'll have a look at uh, just a few headings. Uh, the first, the cost of redemption, the willing redeemer, and responding to redemption. Uh, the cost of redemption, the willing redeemer, and responding to redemption. Let's have a look. The cost of redemption, verses 1 to 8. Well, uh, just as Naomi had assured Ruth, uh, Boaz doesn't rest until he's settled the matter. And so uh, that very day we read in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1, Boaz goes to the town gate. And uh, he meets the other redeemer at this place. He calls in ten elders to witness to what was going to be agreed on. And Boaz reveals to this man that he has the right to buy a parcel of land that Naomi is now selling. And to our shock, perhaps, verse 4, he even encourages this man, buy the land. And we who've been following the story are sitting on our seats at this point. Will he buy the land? Will Ruth go to this unnamed person rather than Boaz? And things get worse for us too, because then verse 5 we read, this Redeemer says, I will redeem it. Uh, at this point, if you're at home, you, you know, you'd be standing, sitting in front of the TV and you start throwing chips at the TV. And you're like, this is not the ending that I wanted. We want Boaz, noble, kind Boaz, the man that we've got to know through the story. We want him to be the man that redeems Ruth. We want the right ending to the love story. Well, thankfully, Boaz is a wise man. And so we see in verse 5, he has something more to add to his uh, explanation. So far, he's told the man there is a field that Naomi is selling. But there is a little bit of fine print to the selling of this field. He says, verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Here's the catch. Boaz tells the unnamed redeemer, when you buy the field, you're going to acquire Ruth as well. Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, and you're going to have a responsibility then to restore Elimelech's family line. This is Old Testament law. It comes out of Deuteronomy 25. There's a few other passages you could look at as well. Leviticus 25 says something about redeeming land. And uh, there's a great account in uh, the book of Numbers where uh, daughters are left without any, uh, the possibility of an inheritance and that is not to be the case in Israel. That is something that should be redeemed, that should stay with them. All of this comes to bear in this passage and is what's going on in the background. But here is the catch. Here is uh, what has to happen. When the land is bought, Ruth goes with it. And what that means for the person buying the land is that there's going to be an offspring 
who would take the name of the dead father, not you. There's an offspring, possibly, who would eventually inherit Naomi's land that you paid for. There's an offspring who would inherit any investment also that you made into that land. Any money you put into that land eventually would go to them, not you or your family. And therefore, actually, this sale of land means that your tribe and indeed your kids end up with less and Elimelech's tribe is paid for and they end up with the, the profit and uh, all of that you've put into that land. In essence, you'd be putting your own kids' inheritance on the line. So suffice it to say, in the story we see, the Redeemer re-examines his, uh, his decision. And it's not long before we see he decides it's too much. He can't afford uh, this kind of a cost. He's quickly backpedaling. And uh, in verse 6, we read him say twice for emphasis to make sure it's clear. He says, I cannot redeem it. I cannot redeem it. It is too costly. Too costly. Now, I'm not sure if you've had many moments where you've had to redeem something. Uh, I was thinking about this, and the closest I've come to redeeming something was uh, early on when me and Sarah were dating. And uh, she was driving back to Melbourne, and she'd left her wallet at home in Melbourne. I lived in Geelong. And uh, she'd fill up for petrol halfway home. And so I got a call. Uh, Sam, I need someone to come and, and pay for my petrol. I can't drive home because they're giving me two hours, and it was more than two hours to get there and back. And I can't drive back to you because the same thing was true there. Someone needed to come there and pay for the petrol so that she wouldn't be arrested for stealing petrol. And so uh, my my mum kindly came with me and we drove together uh, up to uh, this petrol station halfway between Geelong and Melbourne. And we paid for the petrol to redeem Sarah, uh, redeem her from uh, the cost of that petrol. I say this as a closest because uh, it's, it's, it's the best I could think of. And it, and when I reflect on it, it didn't cost me very much. It was quickly recovered, and uh, there was nothing more really to it. But the redemption pictured here is very costly. So costly, I think, like in our culture, we don't quite comprehend it. Buying the field and roof here is kind of like buying a house with a mortgage, and over those years, paying that mortgage off and the interest and any repairs for that house that's needed, as well as having tenants in that house uh, who don't pay you rent, but you pay them a rent. And then at the end of all of this, when the house is fully paid off, you give it all to the renters. And uh, your family gets nothing. That is kind of the extreme cost here of redemption. Redemption is costly. And while we might think perhaps uh, we do what Boaz has done, perhaps we feel like we're noble like Boaz, the reality is I think that our intentions mostly tell us that we aren't like that. 
So most of the time, I think we would act for our own best interest, or at least for our, our family's best interest. I think you just have to drive around Clyde to see how self-interested we really are. See, our houses these days show our love of self rather than of others because we're trying to kind of block off the rest of the world. And nowadays, you don't have to really even talk to your neighbour. You can actually just drive in your driveway, uh, open up your garage door, drive in there and close it and walk inside, never to be seen, never to even know if your neighbour is in need. Uh, or even just driving in your car, you notice the self-interest that we have. People tailgate you, don't they, when they want to get their way into where they want to go. They speed because it's in their best interest. Who cares about you on the road? But perhaps we're a bit more selfless. Perhaps we give to charities. Or we stop to talk to that homeless person out the front of the shops. But how far are we willing to go? Are we willing to actually infringe on our own comfort? For the sake of another? Would we be willing to put our family's future at risk for the sake of another? I think if you're anything like me, that's probably where you draw the line. If my family is going to be harmed or jeopardized in some way, then I'm out. Now, I don't say this to shame us or to put us in a situation where we might put our family in danger. The, the Bible uh, says a lot about actually loving your family, loving your parents, looking after those who are closest to you. But I'm telling you this to show you the costliness of Boaz's decision. Redemption is costly. Well, redemption is indeed costly, but we see here, though the unnamed redeemer is unwilling, there is a willing redeemer. We move on to verses 9 to 12. The unnamed redeemer gives up his right, we see in verses 7 to 8, and uh, he tells Boaz there, buy it for yourself. Uh, and then we have uh, what is probably the Old Testament's form of a handshake. Uh, one of the weirdest things, uh, one of the weird things, there are many weird things in the Old Testament, but here's one of them. Uh, we see this kind of strange ceremony of uh, handing over a shoe. I should have worn thongs today so I could do this in front of you. Uh, but he, he takes off his shoe and uh, he hands it to the other person. And then I presume uh, the unknown redeemer kind of hops his way home uh, to the shame of his neighbours who can see, you know, oh, something's happened here. Where's your other shoe? Why a shoe? I think it's because the shoe is kind of the thing you, you walk on the land with. And so you're giving up the rights to the land with, you know, a sort of, a sort of visible sign of uh, something that would be a part of that. But it is a bit of an odd thing. It's, it's stipulated in Deuteronomy 25. And in Deuteronomy 25, actually, uh, this is for closer redeemers. This is for brothers. So I think this is perhaps why this doesn't happen here. But if someone uh, says they will not uh, marry the wife of their brother to keep the family line going, they hand over a shoe and then they get spat on in the face because it's such a shaming moment that they're not willing to preserve their family line. Uh, that doesn't happen, I think, because he's a bit more distant. It's not quite as shameful. He can say no. But we see what Boaz is willing to do. In verse 9, Boaz says this. 
to the elders and all the people now watching. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Here Boaz commits publicly to redeem. He's got no intention of backing out later. Uh, no intention of doing a dodgy, your, your word versus mine kind of thing here with the terms. He's completely willing to redeem at great cost to himself and his family. At the cost of uh, marrying a foreigner, which I, I'm sure was looked down on uh, in Israel because the law says it, it's something that shouldn't really happen. And Ruth was a Moabite, the enemy of Israel. And he does it at the personal cost of his own family, inheritance. He's going to put money from his family's inheritance into this family's inheritance. There's even the possibility that Ruth could bear just one child to Boaz. And therefore, that child could inherit all of Boaz's inheritance and his name perhaps be diminished. This. But Boaz is willing to pay, pay that price. He cares more for her house, for the house of Israel, for this house of Elimelech, than he does about his own personal house. Boaz is willing to count the cost. Uh, another movie reference for you. I'm not sure if you've seen the movie The Blind Side. Uh, it's an American movie. And it's about uh, an, an African-American uh, teenager who ends up on the streets and uh, a well-to-do white American family uh, come along and uh, the mother sees him walking one day and she just takes him in without any real knowledge of his background or what kind of a person he's like, takes him in. It's another story of redemption as the family redeems this son from a life that he was on the track towards. And he said, gives him a different life. Uh, it's costly for the family because they uh, pay for his uh, schooling and they go through all the hardness of really treating him as their own child. And uh, what they do eventually is they also uh, train him in football because they love football, American football that is. And um, one of the final scenes of the movie is a kind of interrogation scene. Because this kind of thing doesn't happen every day. It's quite a costly thing. Not many people are willing to do it. And so uh, he gets, the African-American child is, is a really good football player and he gets given a, a contract, a scholarship to a high, you know, a highly privileged uh, US college to play football. And uh, the college football administration are concerned that the family have just taken him in for their own gain. That is, that they've done this uh, for themselves. And so they have this interview with the African-American, asking him, uh, do they, do they, did they take you in? Have they pressured you to go into this team in football? That is, implying that uh, the family have only adopted him because they wanted 
their team to do well in a football season. So unusual is this kind of costly redemption that people are suspicious of it. That's how rare the willing redeemer is. But Boaz is the willing redeemer, just as that family in the blind side were willing to redeem. Well, he willingly redeems, but how do people respond to that redemption? So look at the final thing in the passage, verses 11 to 12. You get the feeling this isn't just what happens every day, partly because I'm sure there wasn't many people jumping around on one foot with one shoe, uh, but also because as we look at the passage in verse 11, the scene has grown. It started off with just the Redeemer and Boaz and ten elders. And now we see other people are there, uh, obviously looking in, what's going on here? And in verse 11, we see their response to this amazing redemption. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give by this young woman. How do they respond? Well, they respond in, in a prayer, in a kind of blessing. And their prayer really centres on Boaz's house, which I think is very fitting because Boaz all along seems to have shown not too much concern for his own house, but more concern for the house of another, and um, more largely than the house of Israel as a whole. And so their prayer then centres in on Boaz's house. A prayer that despite Boaz's sacrifice in his own house and for his own house, that God would bless that house through his sacrifice. And they pray this in three ways. Uh, and there's a number of uh, famous women of the Old Testament here. Firstly, there's Rachel and Leah, who were those that bore the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, their prayer is that God would make Ruth like them. That is, yes, that she'd have lots of offspring, but they were, in some ways, the, the mothers of the people of God. May the people of God come from you, Ruth, and from your house, Boaz, which indeed it does. Uh, he prays, they pray too that uh, Boaz's name would be renowned in Bethlehem, and indeed it does. Uh, it is. It becomes a famous town because of Boaz and his offspring. And finally, they pray too that his that it, uh, his house might be like the house of Perez, the great patriarch of Judah, and Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah. Tamar uh, is an amazing figure in the history of Israel and of Judah because she has a heart more for the people of God and their continuing than she does for herself. And uh, it's, it's a strange tale. There's a whole other sermon in this tale in Genesis 38. Tamar sleeps with her father-in-law because her father-in-law is unwilling to give her to his youngest child to continue the family tree. And she's counted as blessed 
because actually she has the concerns of God and of God's people more in her heart than indeed Judah did. So she's rightly mentioned here, and she's mentioned again in Matthew 1, where all of these uh, women are mentioned again. Uh, Matthew 1, which tells the story of Boaz's offspring, of Jesus. And there we find Tamar, we find Ruth, and we find that, uh, particularly as well, Boaz's own mother, uh, which I was surprised to find out, was Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute, when Israel came into the promised land and fought against Jericho, it was Rahab, the prostitute, who let the spies in and out and became part of the people of God. This is Boaz's mother, a foreigner. Significant, nonetheless. The Lord indeed proves to be very good to Boaz. Their prayer is answered. Their prayer of the people for the glory of this house and of Israel, really, through it. It's a great prayer for the Redeemer. And it's a reward that is indeed fulfilled that Boaz could only dream of how that would be. But what do we make of this story? That's a good question to ask is who do we identify with in this story? We might feel like we want to be Boaz. Like Boaz is the man. He is a noble and good and kind man. But are we Boaz? Well, as I said earlier, I think actually we're more like the unnamed redeemer often in our self-centeredness. But I think we actually associate more with Naomi and Ruth in this story than we do with either of them. Psalm 49 says this about us and our great need that we also share. It says, truly no man can ransom or redeem themselves or give to God the price of of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and he can never suffice. The testimony of scripture is that we are in deep need as Christians, as people. And there's nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves in that situation. We need someone to intervene, someone to redeem us. We need someone willing to bear the great cost for us. And this is how the Bible speaks about Jesus. He is the one who is willing and able to pay the costly price of our redemption. Jesus says this in Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom redeems the same, a similar word in the New Testament. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or in Titus, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us. One Peter tells us how. It says, you were ransomed, not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus is the great redeemer that Boaz pointed to. The redeemer who paid the ultimate price for you, for your life, paying for your sin, who would bring you from an excluded people outside of the kingdom of God into God's kingdom. Now, 
Now, this is the wonderful hope of the gospel. But do you believe it? Do you hold it truly in your heart? So you might think, yes, I've heard this story and I know that Jesus died for me. But you might still think there are areas of my life that are beyond reach. There is sin in my life that I still feel this immense weight and guilt about. Can Jesus really redeem me from what I feel? Well, Jesus was willing to bear the ultimate cost for you, indeed, for that very thing. He was willing to die to redeem you from it. His redemption is greater than Boaz's. And Boaz is a great example for us of how Jesus feels about you and I. See, how he felt about Ruth and what he did for Ruth is exactly how Jesus feels for you and I even more so. And he was willing and more able than Boaz to redeem us. This is the great day of redemption of Christ. It has happened already. He has redeemed you. You have come as Ruth comes to the day of redemption this day. You have been there. But the New Testament also points us forward and says there is a day of redemption coming. Galatians 4.30 speaks of the day of redemption, the day when we'll truly inherit our inheritance that the Redeemer Jesus has bought for us. So we might still feel the weight of sin in our lives. We may still feel like it clings to us. We long to be redeemed from this body of sin, and that day is coming. We long to be with Jesus and see him face to face. We long to receive that inheritance he's purchased for us. It's coming. The Redeemer has bought it for you. And the testimony of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit is your guarantee of that day, of your inheritance to come. Maybe keep this picture in your mind when you're tempted to fear and worry that you don't have or that you haven't been redeemed. Jesus holds the sandal of your redemption in his hand. He has defeated death, he has defeated sin, and he has stripped it of its sandal, of its power over you, to walk over you in your life. And he holds that. He has redeemed you. And one day you're going to know your full redemption. But one day you're going to know fully what he has purchased for you, and it's going to be a wonderful, beautiful day, just like it was for Ruth. So let me pray for us. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died to redeem us. We thank you for being willing to pay, pay the price of your life. We thank you for the promise of an eternal inheritance. Would you assure us this day of your Holy Spirit's work in our lives? That indeed the Holy Spirit is in us, testifying that there is a final day of redemption coming. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. Help us to wait, to rest assured in your love for us.
in the sufficiency of your death to pay, pay the price for our redemption and to look ahead with longing for the day when we will be with you in paradise. We ask this in your name, our great Redeemer.